0: And as the kids are being dismissed, why don't we stand and just greet those around us and welcome them this morning. Maybe be seated. And one more greeting just to pass on to you, Pastor Joe and I on Friday went and visited with Pastor Richard and Inga Honze, who many of you know, and he just asked after our visit was over on Friday if I would extend greetings from both of them to the congregation, and so I do extend those greetings. Now, like many here, I grew up in a church that preached about heaven, and that the only way to get there was through Jesus Christ. Unfortunately for me, this did not make Jesus Christ very attractive because I didn't want to go to heaven. See, actually, heaven kind of scared me. Uh, First off, to get to heaven, you had to die, and that was not something I really was looking forward to. Secondly, heaven was described to me as a church service in which I would sing in the choir. Yes, you know already what I'm thinking about that. All I could think about was those dreaded Christmas concert rehearsals on Saturday morning that I was forced to go to as a kid when all my pagan friends got to sleep in, watch cartoons and eat cereal in their pajamas. And third, as if those first two reasons weren't bad enough, I was told that heaven was going to be forever. A forever church service choir rehearsal. Oh. The only reason any little boy would sign up for something like that was because the only alternative given was being barbecued for eternity forever. And so my afterlife options didn't seem very favorable. I didn't really want to go to either place. So I mostly tried not to think about it. But whenever the topic of heaven came up in church, I got a little panic attack. And I would pray to God, God, please save me from hell and heaven. So I sympathize with Huck Finn when he is... Thinking about this same topic in his book or Mark Twain's book about Huck Finn, he says this, "'Miss Watson, a tolerable, slim old maid, was going to live so as to go to the good place. Well, I couldn't see no advantage in going where she was going, so I made up my mind I wouldn't try for it. Now, she had got a start, and she went on and told me all about the good place.' She said all a body would have to do to go there was all day or all, a body, all somebody would do when they went there was all day long sing and play the harp forever and ever. And so I didn't think much of it. But I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there and she said not by her considerable sight. I was glad of that because I wanted to be where he was. Well, As I got older and started reading my Bible, I was relieved to find out that many of the ideas that I was taught in church about heaven were not what the Bible was actually saying about heaven. In fact, it seemed like the church had taken a sentence here and there, a word here and there, and then had developed this whole idea about heaven more based on their preconceived ideas that they already had rather than what scripture said. Images from Dante's Divine Comedy, written 700 years ago, and based on the now totally disproven geocentric theory of the universe, still seem to dominate many people's minds when they think about heaven. Besides being disproven, geocentricism, which essentially places the earth at the center of the universe, and then hell in the center of the earth and then heaven on the farthest outreaches of the universe, was really an idea based more on Gnostic ideas, which saw matter as evil. And the further out you go, the more spiritual and more good you become. The goal in this kind of idea was to escape from the earth into heaven with one's spiritual soul. Uh, This idea also became so dominant in the church that when Copernicus and Galileo said that this is not the way the universe is actually set up, in fact, the sun is, the earth actually goes around the sun, the, sun, the earth is not the center of things, the church found this a threat to its whole system of theology. And yet, to this day, Dante's views of heaven are still perpetuated in many of our Christian funerals and home Bible studies and popular culture. This morning, we are in John 14, a chapter that begins with two verses that are often misunderstood and not read in their full context and used to support this idea of heaven being off in the clouds somewhere. When we look at John 14, it says this, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Now next to Psalm 23, this passage is one of the most common ones used at Christian funerals. These words of Jesus saying, I go to prepare a place for you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And it is a good passage of scripture to use in that kind of a context. The problem is, is when we superimpose our ideas Onto the text. And make it say what it is not actually saying. See the ideas that are often superimposed onto the text. And what I've heard many times even preached out of this text. Is something like this. In a funeral context. The passage would be read. And then you would hear the preacher say something like this. So while here we are at a funeral today. But we need not have troubled hearts. You see Jesus has gone To prepare a place for us. He's building for us a mansion in the clouds. So that when you die, if you have received Jesus, you can be welcomed into your heavenly new home. So don't cry. Your loved one is already enjoying her new garden. And a spacious dining room. And one day you will join her there for a meal together before you head off to choir practice. Now, see, that was precisely the kind of idea that did cause my heart to trouble as a little kid. If the harps could at least be electric and come with distortion pedals, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But in the church that I grew up in, those kind of harps were for hell, not for heaven. So I was glad when I discovered that John 14:1 and 2 is not teaching anything close to what I just gave as a miniature funeral sermon. That's not what it's saying about heaven at all. Uh, One of the valuable lessons that I learned from debating with Jehovah Witnesses is that by merely referencing sentences here and there all over the Bible, you can pretty much make it say anything you want. You can even use it to support slavery and polygamy And to outlaw bacon and shirts made of more than one fabric. So, I did what you should do, and that is I read on in John chapter 14. And a clearer picture of what Jesus is saying starts to fall in place, even in the next verse. In fact, Jesus, after he says, I go and prepare a place for you, goes on to say, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. And I stopped and said, wait a minute. Why didn't they read on and why did they never comment on that? Jesus says that when it's ready, he will come back for us. It seems to be a clear reference to the second coming. Which, incidentally, hasn't happened yet. The passage is not talking about when people die flying off into the cloud somewhere. It's talking about Jesus coming back to us at the second coming. And in fact, this is consistent with what scripture says elsewhere on this topic. As we read in Paul, his emphasis was always on the resurrection of us at the second coming of Christ. In fact, he says something very similar in First Thessalonians when he says, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died. Here's something very explicit. What happens to a loved one when they've died? He says, I want to tell you what happens so that you will not grieve like those who have no hope. Sounds just like what Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So what happens to our loved ones when they've died? This is what Paul says. We believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again. And also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. It's the same thing that is Jesus says in John 14. That when it is ready, I will come back for you so that you will be with me. Paul says the same thing. Don't grieve about those who have died. Because when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back. He's going to raise them back to life again. It's interesting that in both these phrases. the In Jesus and in Paul. The emphasis is on this is our hope. This is the reason you don't grieve like people. Who have no hope. This is the reason your mind doesn't need to be troubled. The hope, the emphasis in Scripture of why we cannot have troubled hearts is because of the concrete reality of resurrection at Jesus' second coming, not with flying away as spirits. The Bible doesn't put the hope in that. Whatever you believe about the intermediate state or whether or not we actually can become disembodied souls or or not, this is not what Jesus is talking about here. There's no emphasis in that, and very little emphasis, if at all, in Scripture. The emphasis, the hope of why we don't grieve like the rest of people, why our hearts do not have to be troubled, is because we believe Christ is coming back again. I will come back for you. And when I do you will be raised from the dead. You will be with me. Jesus is not saying, don't let your heart be troubled because you will go to a temporary mansion in the sky where you will await the resurrection of a new body. What Jesus is saying is, don't let your hearts be troubled because no matter what happens to you, even death itself, I will conquer it. And come back for you. And raise you to life again. You see, Jesus is going to return to this earth again. Jesus is coming to get you. And when he does, we will be raised and we will be with him forever. So the question you may ask then is, so okay, well then when he does all this, when he comes back again, where is he going to take us? That's exactly the very next question. Again, if you read the whole thing, that's exactly the next question the disciples asked him. Thomas says, Lord, we have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? This happens a lot in the Gospel of John. Jesus talks about water. He talks about birth, food, blindness, sleep, And in this passage, he talks about homes and a place. And the mistake made is that his hearers continually take it literally. Sometimes we do the same thing today, even though in the Gospel of John, it's so apparent that Jesus is constantly saying, I'm simply using these as illustrations, Of something much different. I'm not talking about literal water or birth or food or blindness or sleep. And in this passage, a home and a place. I'm simply using pictures to talk about much greater concepts, Thomas. So in answer to Thomas's question, Lord, where where is this place? Where are you going? Jesus says, Thomas... I'm not talking about geography, I'm not talking about a geographical closeness, I'm talking about relational closeness. It's not about where, Thomas, but it's about with whom, which is why when Thomas says, Where are you going, Jesus? Where is this place? Jesus answers this way. He says, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would have known who my Father is. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So when Thomas says, Jesus, where is this place? Jesus' answer is, it's the Father. Where are you going? I'm going to the Father. It's about relational closeness. It's like an army officer coming home from an assignment in Afghanistan and it's his last assignment and he comes home and says to his uh, wife or he's coming home to his wife and says i'm coming home for good and when i get there i will no longer have to leave so you can stay with me permanently it's more along that lines it's talking about closeness in relationship, not geography. When everything is ready, Jesus says, I will come and get you so that you will be with me where I am. Where is Jesus? I'm with the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying when I come back to get you, I come to get you to be with me. Where is Jesus? I'm living in a mansion in the clouds. And I've given you room number 314. No, Jesus is not talking about that. He's saying, I'm with the Father. I'm going to the Father. I'm in perfect union with the Father. And when I come back for you and raise you from the dead, you too, like me, will be in union with the Father forever. And so we need to then ask ourselves and say, okay, well then, where is the Father? Well, we look in Scripture He's everywhere. He doesn't live in some place somewhere in the sky. He is just as much present here as he is everywhere else. He's omnipresent. So Jesus is not speaking about a location barrier. We're down here. The Father's way up over there. And Jesus is going to come back for us and put us in a spaceship or on a flying cloud. And he's going to take us to the Father because the Father's somewhere else. That's not the problem. The problem is that there's a barrier between us and the Father who's all around us because of sin and death. And that Jesus is saying, when I come back and raise you from the dead, death will have been conquered. Sin will have been annihilated so that you can now dwell in the presence of the Father who is all around you. But you now can dwell in the presence of the Father without any barrier, any wall of sin and death. You can fully experience the presence of God. It's a relational barrier that I have dealt with and will annihilate At my second coming. Jesus is not the way to God. Because there is some kind of distance of space. That needs to be overcome. Jesus is the way to God. Because there is a distance between God and us. Because of sin. And death. And he bridges that gap. This is what Jesus means when he says. When everything is ready, I will come back and get you, so that you will be with me where I always am. That is, I am always in the Father. You too will be. In his translation of this passage, Charles Williams gets the relationship aspect of this point across beautifully when he... Translates it like this I will come back and take you to be face to face with me, so that you may always be right where I am. I will take you, and we can now be face to face, and you can now be where I am with the Father. The King James says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Again, where? With the Father. The ESV says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Notice the location. First off, we get the timing wrong if we say that what Jesus is saying is that when we die, we float off and go to where he is. When what he says is that when we die, I will come back to get you. And then I will take you where? To me. I will take you to myself. That's the destination. I will take you to myself, and then where I am, you may also be. Where am I? I am in union with my Father. To think of God as living in a location to which we have to travel when we die is to reduce our ideas of God to be more like Zeus or Jupiter. Pagan ideas, white beard, thunderbolt, with everything in us, we must resist these kind of ideas about God. They're pagan ideas. And therefore, many of our ideas about heaven and the afterlife become much more like pagan ideas. Everything with the river Styx crossing over in a boat. and to... This is not what Scripture's teaching. In Christian teaching, God is personal spirit. Who is everywhere. And in whom we live and move and have our being. There's no place where God is not. Our separation from Him is due to rebellion, even though He's all around us. Yet Jesus, who is one with God, provides a way for us to once again be one with God through Him. And so John 14 is not about mansions in heaven where disembodied souls fly off to be with Jesus in the sky. Instead, it's about Jesus coming back for us so that though we die, we will be raised to live with him in perfect union with the creator. In other words, if you look on the front of your bulletin, if you have the bulletin paper one or if you pull it up on your phone and see the cover, the answer to the question of is it up or down, it's not. The message of the Bible is not about us going up. It's the message of Jesus coming down to us. And that is true for the location thing as well. This John 14 passage here doesn't deal with the location issue. That's often read into it. The only location that John 14 talks about is the location in Christ. The place, the houses, the illustration that's being used there in John 14 is Christ. He's the house, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the destiny. We have to go elsewhere in Scripture to find the location of where we're going to be after the resurrection. And when you do that, you find the location to be on the newly restored earth. That God is making all things new, heavens and the earths, earth, all new. And heavens here in scripture often refers to the galaxies. When you look off into the heavens. Again, it's not about flying away and escaping the earth. That's not the biblical message. But about God coming down and restoring the earth, including us. He is going to restore all things. It just doesn't make sense from the very beginning of creation for God to create the earth and to say it is good, and then to say my whole plan with it, once people messed it up, is just to blow it up and say good riddance to us. I'm gonna just, you know, create a spiritual place. From the Bible, from the beginning of God's good creation, to the larger implications of his prophecy to Israel, to creation's cry for restoration in the book of Romans, to the way that we pray when we say, May it be on earth as it is in heaven, to the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven onto the new earth, to the new heavens and new earth in Revelation, the whole trajectory of Scripture, of God's plan, is to rescue and restore His broken creation, not to escape it, but to fix it, to restore it, so that we can be in perfect union with Him and the Father living on the earth, and in the galaxies that he has made. See, our hope is not expressed in ideas like the song, This world is not my home. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up where somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I have a loving mother just over in glory land. And I don't expect to stop until I shake her hand. She's waiting now for me in heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? I mean, that is worthy of a cheesy hallmark card. It's not biblical theology. There's no hope in songs like that. It's sentimentalism. It's not good, hard Bible teaching. Instead, our hope is found much more in words expressed like in the hymn, This is my father's world. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. The birds their carols raise, the morning light the lily white, declare their maker's praise. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. That is good theology. And that is where we have our hope. That is why our heart doesn't trouble. That is why we can cling and not grieve like other people. Because God reigns, let the earth be glad. Not because this world's not my home, I'm going to float away and hold my grandma's hand in heaven in a disembodied spirit. But because he reigns, he's conquered, he's going to fix everything that's gone wrong with his creation so that his creation will be alive and well and vigorous. The way it was intended to be. So why should your heart be sad? We don't grieve like people who have no hope. Don't let your heart be troubled. Because Jesus is coming back again and will make everything right. We will live with him forever in union with God the Father. Without sin, without death. We will have new bodies. We'll be on a new restored earth. And we'll probably have the potential to explore the galaxies. Because this is our Father's creation. And he doesn't abandon his creation. In a recent children's devotional book simply called theology. The writer writes a chapter on the new heavens and the new earth. And in there he describes it like this. We will live with Jesus, building homes, tending gardens, making music, creating art, and in all kinds of different ways fill the world with beauty and joy. Animals will once again fill the earth and they will live in peace and harmony with us and Jesus will sit on his throne and welcome us. I'm like, why wasn't I told that when I was a kid? That is good stuff. That's something to be excited about. I'm glad we're we're getting some better theology written for kids nowadays. That's something I can literally sink my teeth into. It sounds so much better than bodiless, ethereal, floating beyond the blue, eternal church services in heaven that I was told about in my childhood. Instead, I can take comfort in what Christ has done and how he is restoring all things. Why should our hearts be sad? We do not want you to grieve like people who have no hope. Don't let your heart be troubled. I don't need to have a troubled heart because I won't have to go to choir practice after all. My wife can go if she wants to. Christ will come back. He will get us. He will raise us from the dead. He will fix everything. He will restore our union with God. And the Bible says, therefore, comfort each other with these words. You know, whenever I look at this area, this is what makes Christianity so different from almost every other faith out there. You talk to anybody in pretty much any other religion, or even just people out there in pop culture, Or a lot of Christians, unfortunately, and you talk about heaven and everybody, it's out and beyond the blue and the clouds. And that's what everybody teaches. The Hindus teach, it's all floating away. What's so different about Christianity is that it actually teaches the opposite. It teaches about a God coming back in Jesus Christ and fixing this place. And restoring us in real bodies. Even in Paul's day, that's what was so radical. In Paul's day, everybody believed Paul would have went around preaching the fact that souls float away and that he wouldn't have been controversial. All the Greek philosophers thought that stuff. It was when Paul preached the resurrection of the body that he started to be mocked and laughed at. That is what makes us unique. That is what makes us so different. If we don't uphold the centrality of the resurrection and God's recreation of all things, we're just like a blend of every other faith out there. With some kind of pie in the sky belief system of the afterlife. But no. God created and it was good. God entered his creation, incarnated it in Jesus Christ to affirm his creation and he's coming back again to restore it all. That's the hope of the Christian message. That's why we have a hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for how concrete you are. You are the creator, and you are the one that doesn't abandon your creation. Lord, we pray that as Christians, uh, that we will be creation-affirming people, That we will live as if our bodies really are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we will be good stewards of the earth like you've called us to right in the beginning in the garden. That we will understand that the things that we do with our body directly relates to our relationship with you. And we pray God that we will continue to proclaim and announce the hope that we have in our actions and in our words, that you are a God who restores, not a God who destroys what you've made, but a God who fixes what we've wrecked. Thank you for being a God who is a God of life and not a God of death. Speak to our hearts. May we live lives in which, yeah, there are times of grieving, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Amen.